Before we begin this morning, let me say something that I was supposed to say a few minutes ago, and that is regarding next week's joint worship service. If you are planning to join us in that, if you would please consider looking at the uh, sign-up sheet on the back wall. We need to maintain that great spread of snacks and finger foods that we offer when they come and uh, worship with us here. So uh, we, that would be much appreciated. That in mind, would you please open with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 30. I hope very much that some of the words of the songs that we just sang together are still near at hand in your mind. Words like, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. This is a precious prayer, and its passages, like the one we have before us this morning, where we get a first-hand sense of just how important that is. It's likely that your Bible has a paragraph break at verse 31, and there might even be another one between there and the end of, of the chapter. Uh, it, it's worth keeping in mind as we begin to move into verse 31 and on that the rest of this section from verse 31 to the end of the chapter is a single interaction. This is a single conversation. And we ended last week by noticing that the rest of this chapter begins here with a profession of belief in Jesus on the part of this group. We see that in verse 30. He addresses that group starting in verse 31. And this conversation ends with that group picking up stones in order to kill him. That should be an indication to you that we have got quite a roller coaster ride ahead of us here for such a thing to happen in the course of one conversation, such a shift to take place. We've seen it many times already in the study of John's gospel. Our Lord is not fooled by outward appearances, is he? It continues to be the case today. He is not fooled by the way we would try to present ourselves to others. He's not fooled by the things we might even say to others. He is the one who sees our heart. He even knows people better than they know themselves. He doesn't just know you better than other people in the world know you. He knows you better than you know you. And this crowd has just professed faith in him. But we're going to see this morning that not only is that faith not genuine, which is to say it's not a display of true saving faith, but their own confusion about their relationship to him is based on a number of false assumptions on their part about themselves. And it's those false assumptions, it's those claims that they're going to make about themselves uh, that drive us forward in the text. So this morning, we're going to begin to hear specifically four claims that these Jews are making about themselves that are wrong. In modern terms, we could say they, they can self-identify however they would choose, but it doesn't change the reality of the fact, and Jesus is the one who knows who and what they really are. He is the one with the authority to challenge their own claims concerning themselves. And what he's going to do in this text is he's going to correct those claims, and then he's going to give his own counterclaim at the end. We will get through the first two of the four claims that they're going to make this morning. But by way of preview, let me give you all of these that we're going to see. The first claim we'll hear 
uh, comes out of verse 30. He's going to address the claim that they believe in him. The second claim will come from verse 33. It will be their claim that they are free and not enslaved. The third claim will come in verse 39. They're going to claim about themselves that they are sons of Abraham. And Jesus is going to respond to that. Their fourth claim will come in verse 41. It'll be the claim that they are sons of God. And he'll respond to that. His counterclaim will come in verse 44, where he will say, you are of your father, the devil. This is where we're going. Let's begin by reading verses 30 to 47. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jesus, uh, John continues in this way, speaking of Jesus, starting in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my, words, my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's a pretty powerful thing, it seems to me, to hear these four claims stacked right up against each other and to hear the way that he replies to them. To hear the state of things that as he presents it to them. Can you tell there's a lot for us to think about in this text? There's a lot to work through. 
The first claim that we hear him address comes in verses 30 to 32. And we'll begin there. It's the very claim that they're making of belief in him. And what we find is really the latest of several demonstrations we've gotten so far concerning Jesus' knowledge of people. We saw it at the end of John chapter 2, that many believed in him there. And his response to that profession of belief, it says he refused to entrust himself to them because it says he knew what was really in them. In chapter 6, there was something similar. He had passionate crowds following him in chapter 6. Do you remember that? To the extent that they would have followed him against Rome itself. They were ready to rise up against the Roman Empire. Surely that is a genuine belief in him that he is calling for. And what does he do? He withdraws from them. And he goes to the other side of the lake. And they follow him there. At which time he quite clearly drives them away with his teaching. And he ends that section in John 6.65 by saying, this is very important, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's the kind of statement that should just echo in our minds as we read the scriptures. Because we know this is the kind of statement we have to do something with. He means something when he says such a thing. When he speaks about our dependency upon him, there's a lot of implications to that. But one thing he's making plain in that instance, again, is his knowledge of their true state before him. And he does it again in our text this morning. A group here professes to believe in him. And he addresses it. This time he addresses the claim head on in the way he replies. Look again at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So... Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice what we see in his reply there. Can you tell it's their supposed belief in verse 30 that leads to what he says in verse 31? It's the reason why he says what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, and what he gives them is something of a litmus test as to whether or not they truly believe in him, whether or not they are truly his disciples. What he says is an if-then statement. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Now, that word abide is, depending on the Bible you're holding, it might be translated with some other words. It might use the word remain, if you remain in my word. Or the word continue, if you continue on in my word, that's helpful, helps us to have a sense of what the idea is there. But this word abide, it's not just the verb abide, it's a phrase, abide in my word. And boy, is this a major emphasis in John. The gospel of John, but in in what John writes, the whole corpus of, of John's writing. If you look up that verb to abide, if you look it up in one of the major Greek lexicons, it will go through uh, ways that that word is used. And you'll find in that entry a separate section inside of that verb that specifically has to do with its uses by John. Because that's how often he uses it. There's a whole section in the entry just for how John uses this. And it specifically talks about this phrase, to abide in something. 
Here's what they say in the lexicon there. They say the phrase abide in something is a favorite of John to denote an inward enduring personal communion. An inward enduring personal communion. It's that sort of a union, of a closeness that John over and over again uses to describe certain relationships. And it is really telling to see the kinds of places where he speaks about someone or something abiding in someone else or something else. Just listen to the places where he, where he uses that phrase, what he uses it to describe. And you'll notice as I go through these that there's arrows on both ends. Every time he uses it to describe this relationship to this, he uses it again the other way. So abiding in describes, according to John, the relationship of the Father to Jesus Christ. John 14, the Father abides in Christ. He uses it to describe the relationship of the Christian to Christ. The Christian abides in Christ. John 6, John 15, 1 John 2. He uses it to describe the relationship of Christ to Christians. Going the other way, repeatedly in John chapter 15. Jesus abides in his people. He uses it to describe the relationship of Christians to God, spoken of in a more general sense that way. 1 John 2 and 3 and 4, Christians abide in God. He uses it to describe the relationship of God to Christians. 1 John 3, 1 John 4, God abides in his people. He uses it to describe the relationship of the word of God to us, God's people. 1 John 2, 14. The word of God abides in us. And now here, he uses it to describe the relationship the other way, of Christians to the word of God. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Not just here, but John 15, 7, 1 John 2, 24, he repeats that relationship. Do you hear this dynamic? What we have with all of that together is a crystal clear sense of union, deep Union, not union that is all able to be described in all of the same terms. I do not abide in God in the same way that Christ abides in God, but there is union in all of these ways as God's word gives us. So there's unending union within the Godhead, within the Trinity. There will be unending union between God and his people whom he has ransomed and brought to himself. And because Jesus is for us, the very life-giving vine, there's an, an inescapable union between Jesus' words and his people. Now, what's that, what's that going to mean for them to whom he's speaking, or for us? What does it mean to abide in his word? Well, you think of what we've seen about the union and about the closeness, but also about the remaining, the, the continuing in. What this is going to mean is that if they abide in his word, they're going to receive his word. They're going to receive every word that comes from him. And they will accept it. They will believe it. It's as if he says, you believe me? You believe in me? You will believe my word. You will continue to believe my word. You will abide in my word. And you will be truly then a disciple of mine. That really makes sense, though, just on a, a common sense level, if you think about the word disciple that he is describing here. But what is a disciple of someone? A genuine disciple 
does not follow a person and listen to them with his glasses on the tip of his nose and his notebook out, critiquing what he says, sometimes nodding in approval, but always ready to challenge. That's not a disciple. That's a critic. That's the posture of a critic. A disciple is one who has chosen to follow because he has come to see, in this case, that this man has the words of eternal life. That's who this is. So you have Peter's famous confession that we've seen. Where else shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so a disciple who has been given eyes to see that follows him. And he follows him, ears open, mouths shut, in that kind of a sense. Ready to hear, ready to receive, ready to learn. It does beg the question for God's people at every point in church history. It begs the question for us now. We are the generation of God's people living today, worshiping him, representing him. It begs the question of us. Who are we? Are we disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple of Jesus? And probably even better than asking you that, I might ask people who know you well that question. We're very gifted at self-deception, aren't we? We have a very high view of ourselves oftentimes. What would those who know you well say about you? How do you handle his word? How do you receive the things that he says in his scriptures? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Or are you a critic of Jesus? Maybe even a respectful critic. Are you a literary critic? Are you an ethical critic? You'll hear him out, but his words are subject to your evaluation. So what he says about your priorities, your time commitments, your habits, your perspective about church, your perspective about marriage, your perspective about the lost around you, you could go on. Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Well, if so, you'll, it'll, be, it'll be known, because when he speaks, you will listen. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. You will hear him. And when you hear him, the way you will hear him will be as none other than the voice of God himself. That's the level of authority you will place on what Jesus says. That's what a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus will do with his words. And yet notice in our narrative here, he doesn't even have to utter a second sentence before they challenge what he says. He finishes that sentence in verse 32. We'll look at that verse next. And in verse 33, they immediately respond. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You say, well, that didn't take long. He managed to finish that one sentence before they could not abide what he would say, before they felt the right, the ability to challenge what he might say. He's going to say in verses 46 and 47, why do you not believe me? Well, you'll see when we get there. That's not a question. He has the answer to the question. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's the answer. 
So there's the first claim that they have made that he exposes or leads them to expose as false. You say you believe me, but look at what you do with my words. Look at your posture. That is not the posture of a disciple. That's a very helpful reminder to us in our own time. What is my posture when it comes to the word of God that he has given to his people? Does it determine how I will think and believe and feel about everything that I would encompass in my life? Now, the second claim that they raise, we'll see in verse 33, is the claim that they are free and not enslaved. And they raise this claim because of how he finished that first sentence. He began the sentence in verse 32, or in verse 31, but he said in verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And there's the problem for them. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now there's some question as to what exactly they're saying here. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Some take their words at face value, just in the way that, it's, that it naturally sounds. And so they hear them to be claiming that they have not been under political subjugation in their history. We've never been politically enslaved to anyone. J.C. Ryle takes them that way, as does Leon Morris and many others. Morris says, he says, this, he says the most natural way of taking their words is with reference to outward bondage. And I think that's true, that that's the most natural way to take their words. You can see, though, maybe why, that would, why that's so hard to swallow, that that might actually be what they intended. Because the problem, of course, is that if that's what they really mean, then it is a completely ridiculous statement. One commentator who understands them to mean that, as he speaks to that meaning, he calls it a superb disregard for the facts. D.A. Carson, who does not think that that's what they're talking about here, he writes this, he says, It is unlikely that the objection means the Jews have never been in political subjection to anyone. That would be absurd. There was scarcely a major power whom the Jews had not served. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and Rome had all held the Jews in political captivity. So, but what would be the alternative? Well, he goes on to suggest that they're actually talking about, in some ways, what Jesus is talking about. They're talking, they may not totally understand him, but they're speaking, perhaps then, not in the realm of politics, but in the realm of, in the spiritual realm, in terms of something of an inward freedom. There are a couple pieces of evidence that that might be what they're speaking to. That would, that would fit with the way that they depict themselves in other places, too. Mark 2.17 is one place where those self-righteous Jews are comparing themselves with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus describes them there as being those who think that they are well and have no need of a physician. This is, this is the way they think about themselves. And in, often in those places, they will give the reason as having something to do with their tie to Abraham, exactly like they do here. Another potential piece of evidence that that's what they mean is that it would match better with the words that Jesus just gave, the words that they're responding to. Remember, he said, the truth will set you free. 
That doesn't really make sense regarding geopolitical bondage, does it? Knowing the truth doesn't set one free from Rome. But it it does make sense in a spiritual or ethical sort of way, and that may be how they're taking him here. Again, that could be why they're appealing to Abraham. He is why they think that they are better than everyone else. We may have been ruled over by certain nations, but we have always been free men and women. The seed of Abraham, we've never been inferior to anyone else. What Jesus needs to do then, if that's the way that they are thinking, is not just to explain how spiritual freedom and slavery works, but also to correct their assumption that physical lineage from Abraham grants any privilege regarding that slavery. And this is how Jesus responds to that claim and critiques that claim, the claim that they are free and are not enslaved. The first thing that he does, we see there in verse 34, is he clarifies the nature of the bondage that he's talking about. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now that reply accomplishes a couple of things at once, it seems to me. It does clarify, if they needed clarification, it clarifies the nature of the enslavement that he's talking about. He's talking about enslavement to sin. That's what they need freedom from. That's what knowing the truth will give them, the truth that can only come from becoming his disciples. That's the end of that whole chain of argument. And in clarifying the nature of that enslavement that he's talking about, he also clarifies for them and for us who makes up the categories of free and enslaved. Who belongs in those categories? According to what he says here, the enslaved are those who practice sin. Which means, who are the free? Well, the free would be, then, those who do not practice sin. Now, understanding that statement, and some others like it in Scripture, is a fairly massive undertaking. But it's also very important, because the way that you understand this kind of a statement really has huge implications for how you're going to think about your Christian life, how you're going to think about sanctification and other important issues. So the rest of our time this morning is really going to be given to two questions about verse 34. We'll get as far as verse 36 this morning. One question we need to think about is, what does it mean to practice sin? And a second question is, what does it mean to be a slave to sin? These are the two things we'll spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. One of the most important things, I think, to understand as we're doing this is that even though, as as we'll see, I think, his words are, in a sense, relevant to the effect of individual sins. You know it from your own life. The choice of individual sins does inherently have a habit-forming nature to it, doesn't it? There is something of an enslaving that happens as we sin. And that's a danger, and we need to be afraid of that. We need to be on guard against that. But even though that's true in that sense regarding individual sins, it's important that we recognize that the thing he is talking about is a life that makes a practice of sinning. 
The phrase that he uses in the original doesn't put it exactly like that. He said, in the Greek, he says, the one who does sin. The one who does sin. That is an expression that he picks up in a number of other places, as do other New Testament writers. Probably the most important place for us to go to get the clarifications we need. What is he talking about there? The one who does sin. Is that every instance of sin? The most important place we need to go is the book of 1 John. This is a major theme of 1 John. Turn over there for a moment. Start in chapter 1 and just read verses 8 and 10, and then we'll be in 1 John chapter 3 for a few minutes. But let me read 1 John 1, 8 and 10. And ask yourself as you're hearing this, what reality about our life is he describing here? Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See those two? I hope you noticed that the first part of those two verses is not identical. Verse 8 said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. What is the dual point there? He's telling us not only is it true that we have sinned at some point in our lives, verse 10, it is also true that at every point in our lives, as long as we are drawing breath in this life, it will be true of us that we have sin in our lives. That is going to be true. And that's really important for us to hear from John here in chapter 1 because it's going to help us understand what he's about to say next. You can look over at chapter 3. 1 John 3, I'll read verses 4 to 9. This is where John employs the same language that Jesus did in our, in our passage here. John now is going to speak about doing sin. In most of our translations, it's, it'll, he'll say that in the places where you see the phrase, make a practice of sinning. Several English translations put it that way, make a practice of sinning. You'll see that show up in verse 4 and verse 8 and verse 9. He will repeat that. But as I read verses 4 to 9... Don't just look for those phrases. Pay special attention in kind of a general way, just to the point that John is making in what he says here. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I just have to think that that's one of those passages that can be incredibly difficult for many Christians to understand, to wrestle with, to know how to think about. But I'd suggest to you that most of that difficulty will come if I've just plucked that out. 
And I read it without reading what we read in 1 John chapter 1. He's making a whole argument. It's not a series of fortune cookies that stand alone one from the other. Do you hear, given what we saw in chapter 1, that when he speaks here about making a practice of sinning, Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Do you hear that in light of chapter 1 and understand that he is not speaking there about individual acts of sin? What is he speaking about? He's speaking about a life that, quote, does sin. A life that makes a practice of sinning. A life characterized by the heart-hardened choice of sin. Sin is my desire. Sin is What I love, my affection is there. And his whole point in this passage is that when one is brought to Christ, there's a real change as regards the believer's relationship to sin. Other places besides this will talk about that change in relationship in terms of the penalty of sin. So our relationship has changed in that we are no longer subject to sin's penalty. That's a true difference when one goes from death to life. Why are we no longer subject to sin's penalty? My friends, why? Did God wink at it and just toss it in the garbage can? He did not, did he? He is wicked if he did that. There is no God if he did that. He poured out the justice of that for that sin on the cross. That penalty has been paid. That's why I'm no longer subject to its penalty, because the penalty has been paid in full. That's a change of relationship to sin when I become a Christian. But here what's being described is a change in terms of, not the penalty, but in terms of the controlling power of sin. We will no longer make a practice of sinning, meaning sin will no longer enslave us. You might not have known it before you came to Christ, although if you lived long enough, you doubtless had inescapable evidence of the fact that you were in bondage to sin. It was your master. It was your taskmaster. It held your affections. And he's saying here, when one comes to Christ, the controlling power of sin is broken in their life. They are no longer enslaved to sin. Now, one very important question that comes up when we're thinking about that is, what about the reality of besetting sins in the life of a Christian? We come to faith in Christ, we begin to walk as God's people, and all of our struggles and temptations to sin just kind of fall away in the first couple of months. Is that what happens to us as Christians? Not at all. Certainly, maybe some things we used to do now disgust us and seem abhorrent to us, but everything does not. And we go the rest of our lives battling sin. In some areas, battling far more intensely than in others. We call some of those areas where we know that we are just not experiencing the immediate victory that we long for. We're engaged in a long-term struggle, maybe with resentment, maybe with the ability to forgive. Maybe there's any number of things, right? We tend to call those besetting sins. We all have those areas in our life. How is that different than enslavement to sin? 
And there's a couple things to, to understand in that. I would remind you, firstly, that the Bible is describing to us here the reality of the case. Before finding mercy and forgiveness and transformation in Christ, you are a slave of sin. But after your Lord saves you, you are not a slave to sin. It doesn't mean that you no longer experience temptation or that some of those battles aren't more intense than others. It also doesn't mean, this is important, that we don't have areas in our lives where we behave as if sin were our master. To our great shame, we do those things, don't we? But the first point I'm bringing out here is that he's stating the reality of the case. The fact remains, if we are in Christ, sin is not our master. And there are a couple of great dangers in those realms that we have to keep in mind regarding that area of besetting sin that afflicts me. One of those is that when we are led to believe that that sin is enslaving us, what happens? If I come to believe that it is, it has enslaved me, it is my master, what's that going to affect? It's going to affect the will that I have to resist and to fight and to go on fighting. If I decide I've lost the battle, one of the first things I might do is give up the battle. Wouldn't you think that that's one of the great deceptions that our enemy would have us believe? Because I have battled that sin for as long as I have. It must be my master. If we're to continue the battle, we have to understand that the cross has, in fact, objectively, ended our slavery relationship to sin. It has ended it. The second danger in that given area of struggle is that it can lead us to fixate on it to the exclusion of everything else going on in our lives. You ever experienced that? You have a particular area of, of sin, struggle, temptation, and when you stop and think about it, it's, it's become the totality of your spiritual life. It's, it's the thing you think about, the thing, the thing you pray for. You've stopped praying for other people. You've stopped thanking the Lord for other things. You're fixated on this area. That's a real danger. If I step back from that area and find other areas in my life where there are signs of life, there is growth, there is the killing of sin, Friends, I have to acknowledge those as evidences of this freedom that God has given me. And it will cause me then to look at that arena of besetting sin and say, my Lord never promised me that it would be easy. But he has promised me that sin is not my master any longer. So I, <clears throat> so I will fight. And I will never stop fighting because I know that whether in this life or after, freedom and victory is inevitable. My Lord has promised it to me. Now consider how that is different from the life of someone who doesn't know the light of Jesus Christ in their lives. And really we get then to the second and final question of this, for us to pose of this verse, the question of what slave to sin means. He says here, you will be set free. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what he names in verse 34. This is one of those places where it is so helpful, isn't it? That we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. So John's statements in 1 John 3 that we just read, 
can help make plain to us that Jesus is describing a life characterized by the practice of sinning, as we've already described. He's not describing everyone with any instance of sin. But now that we've started looking at 1 John 3, now that we've started letting Scripture interpret Scripture, let me remind you what Paul wrote to us in Romans 6, 6. He wrote this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Did you hear how Paul just described the reality that God works when he unites us to Christ in his death and in his resurrection? The result of our union with Christ is that the Bible calls me no longer enslaved to sin. In fact, that was Romans 6.6. Ephesians 6.6 goes on to name us slaves of Christ. I have a new master now. So here's what we have then. Jesus is describing in verse 34 the present and pervasive reality of every human being descended from Adam. There was only one man ever born who was not a slave to sin. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is the perfect son of the Father. He always does what is pleasing to the Father. We've just heard him say that. He is the spotless Lamb of God who came, in fact, to take away the sin of his people. You might remember how we said last week that paternity is a major theme in this chapter. It's been one of his major focuses, telling them that he is the son of the Father above, the true son. And now that he has described their helplessness in these terms, he's chosen to speak in terms of slavery. In verse 35, he finds it handy to speak with a metaphor from the actual world of slavery. That's what he does in verse 35. He goes and grabs an example. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. They think of themselves as sons. Sons of Abraham. In reality, they are slaves. Slaves to sin. And the point of his metaphor is simply to draw on that reality of heir, of uh, right, legal standing in the household, and to say slaves have no status in the house. They have no permanent place in the family, nor can they do anything about it. Their only hope is to be granted freedom. And I love the way that the ESV and others are intentional here to lowercase the word son in verse 35 and to uppercase it in verse 36. Because that's what he's doing. He, he jumps to a quick metaphor in 35 about slaves and sons in a household. Then he uses the word son to jump back to their need for him. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. In that metaphor in verse 35, who is the son? The heir of the household. Who is that? It's not us. That's Jesus. Jesus is the son in the father's household. Jesus is the only begotten of the father. The father has one natural son. What we are, if we are in Christ, here's what we are. We are slaves who were owed nothing, who had zero rights or claims upon the household. 
and who were, by an act of God's pure grace, granted freedom. Freedom at great cost, at the cost of his only begotten son's life. And we were not only granted freedom, but we were then immediately adopted into God's very family. So that we, even we, might be called sons of God. But adopted sons. And yes, ladies, if you know the Lord, you are adopted sons of God too. Because the son is the inheritor. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted as sons. And that's okay, because we guys are the bride of Christ too. So it cuts both ways. All these are images, aren't they? To reflect realities of what God is doing. So we don't have to stumble there. We're good. We're good. What our Lord shows us this morning in his word is that we will know when God has given us the gift of saving faith. Not because we will begin living a perfect life, but because we will love his word. We will abide in his word. His word will mean something to us as we think and as we reason and as we make decisions. It will guide and shape our conscience. And we will know because sin will no longer be our master. The Lord Jesus Christ is our master. Can he be my master and I disobey him at times? Sure can. So when I choose to sin, does that mean sin is then my master? Or could it be that I sometimes choose to obey one who is not my master? Sin will no longer be our master. And my friends, we want that freedom. Oh, we want that freedom. Because the slave has no... The slave has no rightful place in the father's house. We're not kidding around here. We're talking about the inheritance of eternal life or its alternative, eternal death and separation from him, from the only source of any good, the definition of good. This is the terms. That we're talking about. We want this freedom because the slave has no rightful place in the father's house. My friends, what is the hope that God's word is giving us this morning? How will that slave ever hope to become free? Can a slave free himself? Can you turn to God in true repentance by a sheer act of your own will, unaided by our God? Jeremiah 13, 23 asks the same question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What is the hope of the world? Or who is the hope of the world? Verse 36 tells us, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And oh, what a great reversal that is, when the Son sets you free. Then it's read for us this morning, Romans 6, 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification 
and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you come up in your mind with a greater reversal than that? True slavery as freedom in regards to righteousness and true freedom as slavery to God in Christ. A freedom given as a gift that leads to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, may these reminders serve you well as fuel this week in your lifelong declared war against sin and war to bring God glory in all that we do and say and think. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in the very midst of this battleground that is our life in Christ. We thank you for telling us the truth about what it is to follow after your son. We thank you for warning us to count the cost before we do so, to consider the pain, not just pain from things like persecution, but pain from a life of having to deny our natural selves, to, to kill the flesh, to do battle. You warn us that every day of our lives as your people, as the Spirit leads us to righteousness, leads us to obedience, there is the flesh trying to pull us away, trying to lie to us. It is exhausting. Father, we thank you that you have promised to sustain us in our battles to the end. You are the one who gives us life. You are, through your Son, the very life-giving vine that feeds us. Thank you, Lord, for the ways you do that through our own personal times of devotion to you in prayer and in your word, how necessary they are. Thank you for the ways you do that through the ministry of your church. The very pillar and buttress of the truth, as your word describes it. Lord, we thank you for your people, for our friends, our brothers and sisters that have committed to us to walk together after Christ. Lord, give us much renewed strength and energy this week as we seek to pursue your son. We pray in his name. Amen.